Let's pray. Father, send down your spirit now that we might hear, receive, believe and live out the truths that are proclaimed to us in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about fishing with the Lord. I'm no fisherman, not at all. But I can imagine that fishing all night and catching nothing is pretty deflating. All that work, loading the boat, rowing or sailing out to a likely spot, casting in the net and dragging them in and finding them empty. Trying a different spot, waiting for a better tide, cast and drag, cast and drag, and still nothing. Have you ever had an experience like that? Anyone that fisher person out there? Well, it was one of those nights on the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago for seven of just Jesus' disciples. And you might say, what were they doing fishing there on the lake uh, back in Galilee? Were they kind of a bit lost after Jesus had been taken from them? He had reappeared, to be sure, but he wasn't with them all the time. Were they, I don't know, trying to return to an old life? Or were they expectant of something yet to come but uncertain about when it would come and what form it would take? Were they waiting for the mission they knew was coming, but unsure how or when this mission would come? We don't know exactly what was on their minds, but we do know they had no luck that night. But early in the morning, verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they replied. They confess the failure of their efforts, the fishlessness of their nets. Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. This incredible but wonderful turn of events triggers recognition. That indistinct figure shouting across the dawn is Jesus realises John, the beloved disciple. Perhaps uh, because a thing like this had happened before, John was drawn to this conclusion. For we read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both boats so full of fish that they began to sink. So this extraordinary catch that was sinking two boats had come at the beginning of the disciples' journey with Jesus. 
And when Simon Peter saw this, this amazing catch back at the beginning, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This extraordinary catch right at the beginning of their relationship with Jesus was a sign of Jesus' lordship and a sign of the great success to come of the exercise of fishing for people. The disciples would throw the net of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, into the world and they proclaiming, in their proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, they would gather up people with that message and the nets would, so to speak, come up full. Many would respond and be brought into the kingdom of God. And so when, all this time later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, once again a fruitless night's fishing is suddenly transformed into the abundance of 153 fish, John recognises who stands on the shore. He recognises it from the miracle, perhaps, even if he can't make out the face. When the net is finally landed, it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Now, because the Bible is full of symbolic numbers, uh, 12, for instance, for the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, 7 for perfection or completion, the sevenfold spirit of God from Revelation, a four for wholeness or entirety, the four corners of the earth, 40 for a time of testing, 40 years in the desert, 40 days in the wilderness. Because all of these numbers that are mentioned are often symbolic, people have wondered about, what about 153? Is this a symbolic number? What's the meaning of it? Why mention it? I mean, it's Four times 40 minus 7. There is a way to build it out of... Or it's 12 times 12 plus 3 times 3. You know, 3 for the Trinity. Uh, or my favourite, 153 is a triangular number. Um, that means it is 17 plus 16 plus 15 plus 14 plus 13 plus so on down to plus 2 plus 1. Uh, and you can put 153 dots into a triangular array of side 17. Is this meaningful? Well, none of it would seem to be very convincing as symbolism designed to strike the ordinary reader. It is, if there is a pattern there, it is obscure. And so let's take it today that the most obvious meaning of this number is that it is a very large number of fish to find in one net. And the remarkable fact that even with so many fish, the net was not torn has attracted interest. It's been taken as a sign of the unbreakable unity of the church, perhaps, or that none shall be lost, but all held safe in Christ's keeping. And maybe they're nice reflections to have, but it's perhaps reading again too much into the text to think that this is what John really wanted us first and foremost to understand. I think if we step back and think it was a remarkable catch in several ways, not least because this great catch came when the disciples followed Jesus' direction. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. 
perhaps it's right and helpful to make a connection here to John 15.5. The image is different, but the idea might be the same. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. If the disciples then stay true to Jesus, if they go where he sends them, if they do the work he gives them, then it will be fruitful. Not because they are skilled, but because Jesus makes it happen. And so perhaps we can learn a lesson here. When it comes to spiritually fruitful work, our merely human efforts are likely to come to nothing. Like the disciples' fishless night of toil. If we want to see spiritual fruit from the work of our lives, if we want to see others coming to faith, if we want to see ourselves and others growing in faith, if we want to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in our character, if we want to see the love and fellowship of our churches deepened, if we want to see our efforts to do good in the world rewarded, then we should not rely upon our own wits, our own ideas, our own activity apart from Christ. Rather, we should seek the help and direction of Jesus. We all here have many things to do, many projects to pursue, and if we are the disciples of Christ, we do them in his name, in his service, seeking his kingdom to go ahead one way or another, in large ways or small, through the ordinary circumstances and tasks of our lives, the words we say the way we are with people, the choices we make. And it's easy to rush from one thing to another in life, day in and day out. But, and to do this really without reflecting, without seeking the help and direction of Jesus. Now, Jesus is not going to turn up, you know, to your window and say, hey, push that button or, you know, make this call or go with that plan as he's calling from the shore to the disciples, throw your nets on the other side. But that doesn't mean that Jesus won't, in, in his own way, his own risen way, give you help and direction if you ask him for it, to make your efforts fruitful. The kind of, not the rich and famous kind of fruitful, but the spiritual blessings kind of fruitful. If you... Seek Jesus' help and direction, then it will come. So can I suggest you and I review what we are doing each day, each week, and ask for Jesus' help and direction. Should I do this? Lord, how should I do it? For how long? Looking for what outcomes? When you look at your diary in the morning, why not pray, Jesus, as you stood on the shore and gave the disciples, your direction, the direction they needed. So give me today for these things I see lined up. Give me the same direction so that what I do in these meetings with these people, by these actions, as I pursue these tasks, make this, my efforts, help draw in a great catch for the kingdom. For what we do can absolutely count. It can be a success. It can make a difference. It can draw people to God. 
But only because Jesus directs our steps. Only because Jesus empowers our efforts, which he will do when we respond faithfully to him, pursuing the way he has set out for us. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, there is another aspect of this story that I do want us to notice. Even when the disciples are gathered with Jesus around the fire, having breakfast, they still have a question that they wish to ask him, which is in verse 12. And it's a surprising question, perhaps. Who are you? Strangely, this desire to ask this question, who are you, coexists with their confidence that this is Jesus. They knew it was the Lord, we read. Why do they have a question that they do not dare to ask? Who are you? And at the same time, they feel sure of the answer to that question. They knew it was the Lord. It's a feature of the resurrection appearances. Well, that Jesus is somehow not who he was. He's different. While also being exactly who he was. So he's different. He comes into locked rooms. But when he comes, he bears the scars of his crucifixion, which can be seen. He is the one who was crucified, and yet, how can he appear in this way? Uh, He's not perhaps immediately recognisable on sight. When Mary stood outside his tomb, she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Luke writes that when Clopas and another disciple were going to the village of Emmaus, Jesus himself came up and walked with them, but they were kept from recognising him. But, even though there's this non-recognition, when Jesus says, Mary, she knows it is him. When Jesus breaks the bread with Clopas and his friend at Emmaus, their eyes were opened and they recognised him. And when the nets fill up with fish, John says to Peter, it is the Lord. Jesus is not someone different, but he is different. He has his body. He can pick up bread and fish. He can give it out for breakfast. But being with him is not the same. The disciples want to ask him, who are you? Even though they're standing right there with the man they spent so many years with. Jesus, what can I say? Jesus is on his way to the Father. That's what he says he's doing. Uh, His resurrection body is a transformed body. It's a body for a new creation. It's not the tent of our mortality. It's the solid building of our imperishability. Human life is bodily. Human nature is embodied. Uh, You may not be completely happy with the body you have. I'm pretty sure you're not. But don't give up on your body. Don't fixate on your body. But think like Paul. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth. And as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. That's all of us. We are of the earth. We have these earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust bodies now. But Paul writes, the second man is of heaven. 
And the second man is Jesus. And as is the heavenly man, so are also those who are of heaven. Jesus, just as he was changed, so will we be changed at the resurrection of the dead, at the coming of Christ, at the last trumpet. Life will go on now and in the coming age. It will go on being bodily. However, it will be, in the coming age, completely heavenly. Bodily and heavenly. Bodily and glorious, uh, imperishable, beyond the reach of sickness and death and decay. And the full meaning and effect of this is still veiled, even in Jesus' appearances. Uh, But the strangeness in these appearances... This, we want to ask, who are you? But we dare not. But we also know it's you. That strangeness points to the newness of what Jesus' resurrection has brought into being. When our bodies let us down, this hope of resurrection, of the newness of bodies for a new creation, that is, that is hope, that is comfort. But the best thing about the idea that we will have these bodies fit for the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus had a new body after his death and resurrection, the best thing is that having them, we can be with the Lord. We can enjoy life with him because this appearance is is quite lovely. That Jesus invites his disciples to come and have breakfast. It's a great time of the day. Breakfast is a great meal to share. It's a great thing to be with Jesus. Come and have breakfast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that uh, your son appeared to his disciples after his resurrection and shared with them this, this breakfast. Uh, an extraordinary catch of fish, uh, a remarkable encounter with the risen one. And we pray, Lord, that it would kindle our hope, our faith, and that we would look forward to joining that circle at the resurrection of the dead where we will all feast together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.